If you have uh, Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Zephaniah this morning. Uh, it's one of the minor prophets near the end of your Old Testament. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, uh, page 790 uh, is where you'll find Zephaniah 3, uh, verses 14 through 20, which is our, our text for today. Uh, and we're talking about singing today. Uh, along with, uh, many of you I know have been part of a, a church and different kinds of churches for many years. Uh, really, along with preaching, singing is one of the two things that people most closely scrutinize uh, and have opinions and preferences about in a church. It's how many people decide uh, whether they want to be part of a specific church congregation or not. So I just wanted to say from the outset this morning, we really want to hear all of your criticisms, uh, opinions, and preferences. We've set up a special email address for that. It's pj <laughs> at liberty.org. Go ahead and send your complaints, frustrations, and otherwise there. But, but really, as I was thinking about this this week and preparing for, for this morning, uh, if when we leave this place this morning, if, if we are doing more uh, critical thinking about Liberty Church and not about your own heart, uh, not about your own posture, not about your own formation in Christ that happens and, and can happen through singing, then really that will have been a failure on my part and a missed opportunity on yours. Uh, having opinions, having preferences about music and about singing, that's easy. That's not difficult to develop opinions and preferences about those things. On the other hand, having the Word of God expose and evaluate those deep-seated routines, uh, those deep-seated preferences, some of which, yours like mine, are not shaped by the story of God. And then, in light of that, being willing to pursue repentance and faithfulness, that is really the mark of active humility and maturing in Christ. So I, I want to really invite you this morning as we begin to contemplate thoughtfully and open-handedly what singing in the gathered people of God, what singing is, and why we sing together when we do gather. So let's just start with this. Singing in a group of people, that's a really countercultural thing. Uh, it's one of the main reasons why if you haven't been around the church much in your life, or even if you have been around the church for most of your life, it can feel really odd to stand up and to sing with other people. When, we don't really do that in other venues and other places in our day-to-day -day lives. Even when we go to a sporting event, for example, and stand to sing the national anthem, hardly anyone actually sings along with it. It's hearing the performance of someone else. But actually, interestingly, it didn't always used to be that way. There's a director of church music in, in Texas named Jonathan Egner, and he wrote recently about the myth of the non-singer. And in this one particular article, he said this, We know in generations past, basically everyone did sing. They sang in church, they sang at home, they sang at civic functions. The turning point, I believe, came about in 1877 with the invention of the phonograph. The phonograph, of course, led to commercial recordings and ultimately the recording industry. A funny thing happened over time. Music slowly began to surround us as never before, but people stopped singing. We started consuming mass quantities of music, but the discipline of actually making music has rapidly declined. So the skill of singing, which was once nearly universal, is now left up to the quote-unquote professionals. I love that line in there. A funny thing happened over time. And that music surrounds us, but basically everyone has stopped singing. 
In this sermon series that we're in, we started a couple weeks ago and we'll continue for this fall, we're considering how we are always being formed by what or who we devote our lives to. We become formed in, in false narratives that exist in our world. But how liturgy, these, these aspects of what we do in the gathered worship of God's people, those are meant to form us and reform us in the story of God as we rehearse the gospel together each and every week. So beyond simply a, a cultural shift, the absence of singing in our culture, that obscures the story of God. Because what we see when we come to Scripture is that singing is central in the story of God. There are more than 400 references to singing in our Bibles. Creation itself sings. The host of heaven sing. Jesus is sitting around with his disciples and they sing hymns together. More than 50 times the people of God are commanded, they're exhorted to sing. And most significantly, God himself sings. And these songs unfold around us all of the time. And we are meant to join in them. We are meant to participate in them as God's people in the world. The music is all around us, but people have stopped singing. In the book of Zephaniah, one of these minor prophets near the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament, God is bringing judgment on the nations. That's the context of Zephaniah. And one of those nations is the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah, they've witnessed at this point the northern kingdom of Israel being conquered and defeated by Assyria being sent into exile. But even so, even though they've witnessed that, the southern kingdom of Judah has persisted in their own rebellion against God. So Zephaniah talks about how God's judgment is, is coming. After he says that, though, Zephaniah speaks about God's restoration. And he calls the people in this text we're going to read today to sing to the God who is singing over them. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3. I'll start in verse 14 and read through verse 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, our helper. God, our hope. By your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds this morning. Lead us into your truth. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. So this text really helps shape our understanding of singing. And we'll spend our time this morning talking about two broad, broad things. Uh, one is the content 
of faithful singing? What is the content of faithful singing? Number two, the combat of faithful singing. So first, the content of faithful singing. What we sing matters. What we sing matters. In this series, we've been considering how worship forms us. And worship is, of course, uh, much broader than simply singing, but singing, singing is, is a central part of that. And as we seek to be formed in the story of God, as we seek to be conformed to the very image of Jesus, worship is always remembering God's story, God's work in the past, and anticipating God's work in the future. And because of that, that those very things should be the content of our singing. So Zephaniah here calls the people of God to sing, to shout, uh, to rejoice with all of their hearts. Why? Well, one reason is because of what God has done. He has, he says in verse 15, taken away the judgments against them. He has cleared away their enemies. The king of Israel, God himself, Yahweh, is in their midst. God has made a way, in other words, for his very presence to dwell with his people. Zephaniah also then calls them to sing because of what God will do. There's even more of that in this text. He says, on that day, meaning the day of the Lord, in verse 16, God will rejoice over them with gladness. God will quiet them by his love. God will exult over them with loud singing. He will gather the mourners into a celebration. He will deal with oppressors. He will save the lame and he'll gather the outcast. On and on, Zephaniah goes. Now think about when this was written. This was in between the fall and the exile of the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. So somewhere in the 600s B.C., Think about how much more of the story of God has been revealed in the 2,600 or so years since these words were originally spoken, were originally written down. In every single generation, the people of God are called to sing of God's work in the past. They're called to sing anticipating God's work in the future. And every single day, more of God's work moves from that future anticipation to present experience to past remembering. Every day, more of God's work moves from promise to demonstrated faithfulness, which means that, that every additional minute, every additional hour and day and month and year, we have more fuel for our singing. We talked just briefly last week about how we're called to sing a new song to the Lord. Well, we can literally sing a new song every moment because every moment, more of that anticipated future has become present and has become past. Not, this is an important clarification, not that it's always getting better. Sometimes, like in Zephaniah, the immediate horizon is judgment for the people of God. Dark days. If you read the book of Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah is not singing a happy song by any means there. But it's because that each day moves us closer to the day of the Lord, because each day moves us closer to the culmination, to the fulfillment of the redemption of God, each and every day there's fuel added to our singing. And all of this brings up a really important point. If the content of faithful singing is remembering God's work in the past and anticipating God's work in the future, how do we know what that is? How do we know what that is? Beyond our own subjective experiences, what is the reliable guide that forms us in that past, present, and future work of God? And the answer is God's word, scripture, the revealed, the true, the reliable word of God. Whether it's spoken, 
Uh, whether it's recited responsively, whether it's preached or sung or displayed visibly in the sacraments, the content of faithful worship is always the word of God. It's the anchor for worship. It's the, the bedrock of worship. Because apart from the word of God, infatuated as we are with buying into false narratives, buying into myths that exist in our world, we'll, we will always worship gods made in our image rather than worshiping the one who has made us in his image. So we can't just assume that, that all of the songs that mention the name of God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit or all the songs that somehow deal with God's past work and God's future work, we can't assume that all those are faithful just because they mention those things. Why? Because left to ourselves, we aren't faithful. So why would the songs that we generate left to ourselves be any more faithful than we are? Very few Christians set out seeking to worship a God made in their own image. But as soon as the content of our singing drifts away from the word of God, so do our hearts begin to drift away from God himself. That's why what we sing, what you sing, matters. That's why it's not just enough to, to set your dial permanently to Christian radio. You can be formed into a narcissist listening to Christian radio. You can be formed into thinking that the Christian life is always positive and uplifting if you listen to Christian radio, which might really help equip you to be joyful in those moments of your life, but it will leave you woefully ill-equipped for mourning and for lament and for anger and frustration and disillusionment with God. One of the reasons that I am most looking forward to this Indelible Grace concert in the workshop is what PJ just mentioned. They, they champion, Matthew Smith and Indelible Grace champion what, he, what they call emotionally honest worship. And they champion emotionally honest worship because the word of God itself is emotionally honest. In scripture, we have reliable content for our singing. But think about this. It's not just reliable, it's rich. If it sounds boring to say that the word of God is the content of our singing, then I would insist that you don't really know the word of God and you're not familiar enough with it. The Psalms contain an incredibly rich variety of emotion and metaphor and memory of God's past work in anticipation of God's future work. What are the Psalms? The Psalms are the only God-breathed, without error songbook the people of God have ever had. It's why so many of the songs that we do sing in worship as God's people are either directly pulled from the Psalms or they're drawn from them and influenced by them. And then beyond the Psalms, the Word of God has so much other content for our singing. There's songs like the Song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15 after God delivers the people from the Egyptian army. There's the Apostle Paul's doxology in Romans 11. He is so overwhelmed and consumed by the brilliance of God, he just can't contain it anymore. And his heart erupts and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And then we have these amazing scenes in the book of Revelation where uh, the host of heaven and all the people of God sing around the throne of God about the worthiness of Jesus. Ultimately, that's the point. The word of God anchors our singing on the person and work of Jesus. It makes Jesus central, both remembering the work that God has always been doing, building up to the redemption accomplished in the work of Christ, and central to anticipating the ongoing and future work of God. God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. He is, in Jesus, making all things new. 
Let's just pause, though, for a minute here and ask a really important question. If the content of faithful singing is the word of God, why bother singing at all? Why not just read the word of God? Listen to the word of God. Hear someone preach from the word of God. Why do we need to sing? Well, for one, because God calls his people to this. He commands us to sing. But second, and I'm convinced this is actually part of why God commands it, is because singing, like nothing else, is uniquely capable of forging a pathway between our heads and our hearts. Between, as some have put it, doctrine, or the truth we know and believe about God, and devotion, or a feeling sense and a present experience of the God who is present with us. Harold Best, a longtime dean of the Conservatory of Music at Wheaton College, he says that by commanding us to sing, God takes what is really the vaguest form of communicating objective truth, which is music. Music can communicate truth, but it's fairly vague to figure out what that truth is just by listening to music. And Harold Best says he com- God combines that with the most precise way of communicating truth, which is words. Why, as Harold Best puts it, so that we might feel the truth. So that we might feel the truth. So singing forms both doctrine and devotion. It forms in us both truth and emotion. Depending on your your background of singing in the church over the years of your life, you've almost certainly been formed in one of these things over and against the other. So in some circles, singing is basically just a musical version of Sunday school. Right? It's an educational tool. And that's true, but it's only partially true. And then in other circles, singing is really viewed as an emotional experience, which is also true, but it's only partially true. If you've been part of the church for a period of time, as I know uh, many of you have, consider how you have been, even subconsciously, shaped by this. A whole human being, a person created in the image of God, is both head and heart, knowledge and emotion. So has your singing, or maybe even your lack thereof, has that formed you into something that is subhuman? Knowing the the backgrounds of, of many, my sense is that most of the people in this room have been in environments where they've been far more formed in the head and less in the heart. And that would be fine if, if we were only heads as people. But we're not. That's the stereotype of Presbyterians, which is the tradition that I most closely resonate with. They are brains on a stick. That's the stereotype of us. And sadly, it's merited at times. It's subhuman to say that emotions don't matter and that only truth does. Because in the story of God, you are a whole human being created in his image. And similarly, related to this, it's a tragedy when in the name of doctrine, when in the name of education, good quality music and good quality artistic expression is set aside as being unimportant. These are part of imaging God. These are means God has given us not only to know and to remember the truth, but to feel the truth. On the other hand, to make emotions primary in worship, or to use music, to use singing, to manufacture an emotional experience, that is to be formed in a different false narrative. One that says emotions are actually the most reliable guide. 
that emotions are primary, that emotions are inerrant. In other words, rather than being formed by the word of God to feel the truth, we start to believe whatever I feel is truth. And there's a massive difference between those two things, being formed by the word of God to feel the truth versus whatever I feel is truth. That second one is one of the most prevalent cultural narratives of our day, and it is a myth. It's a myth. Let's be unequivocal about that. To the degree that you buy into that, you will worship some false image of a God that's been shaped by your emotions rather than the God who has revealed himself by his word. If the content is the word of God, then faithful singing will be doctrine and devotion. It will be truth and emotion. Bob Coughlin, longtime leader of, of Sovereign Grace Music, puts it this way. He says, music will then be doctrinal fuel for your emotional fire. Doctrinal fuel for your emotional fire. Only that is faithful singing. Only that forms us faithfully into the story of God, into the image of Jesus. So we've talked about the content of faithful singing. Second, let's talk about the combat of faithful singing. In Zephaniah 3, Israel's called to sing. And as we've considered, that, that's a call to remember and to return to God, to anticipate what God's doing. At the same time, as they're doing that, it's a call to combat the corruptions. It's a call to combat the false formations that, that seep their way in and direct our devotion to gods that really are not gods. The whole context of Zephaniah 3 is that God is judging the nations, including Judah, his own people, for turning away from God, for forsaking him, for choosing to bask in their own sin and rebellion instead of trusting wholeheartedly in him. As it forms our heads, as it forms our hearts, faithful singing is combat. Not only in that moment are we worshiping the one true God, it's equipping us to fight against in our day-to-day -day life the six days a week that we're not gathered together like this to fight against the counterfeit devotions, to, to fight against those conscious and subconscious ways that our hearts are prone to wander. So each of these could be their own long discussion. Let me just offer a few examples of how this plays out this morning. I mentioned already the one uh, fighting the myth that, that emotions are primary and whatever I feel is truth. That's an important one. We could talk for a long time about that. Another one is this. Singing combats individualism by forming us in community. Singing combats individualism by forming us in community. So in the West, over the last couple centuries, we've only become more and more individualistic. Uh, and one evidence of that, one picture of that, is what Jonathan Egner was observing, that it used to be normal to sing together in gathered groups of people. Now nobody sings together. So singing together as the people of God in the church, that's increasingly become an important counterculture in our day. When we lift our voices with other men and women and children, it becomes inescapable that we are part of something bigger than just ourselves. And we're going to sing in a, in, a, in a context like that. We're going to sing a variety of songs, none of which will meet everybody's preferences. None of which will hit everybody with the same force of truth and emotion in that moment. So when we refuse to participate in singing, we further entrench ourselves in that false narrative of individualism. But 
when we join our voice together with others, including and especially when it's outside of your preferences, especially then, that's forming you into a community of people, a community that's not united by musical preference. It's not united by music at all. It's united by the finished work of Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel that breaks down dividing walls of hostility that otherwise separate individuals and groups of people. Second, singing combats entertainment by forming us in enjoyment. Singing combats entertainment by forming us in enjoyment. We are... We confessed it together this morning. We are a culture of passive consumption of entertainment rather than active enjoyment of God's good gifts. Which is why, for for almost all of us in the room, most of our experience with singing is sitting passively while someone professional performs for us. Outside the church, you know, we could call that tragic enough. Sitting in groups, singing in groups together with other people used to be a a real common grace witness to the world that you could enjoy joining your voices with other people, you could enjoy relationships with other people. It's a common grace that used to be part of our culture. It's no longer that way. It's tragic enough outside the church. Inside the church, it's beyond tragic. The the gathered worship of the church is never meant to, was never meant to be a, a concert or a performance. And when it is, it's only because we've been shaped by our culture rather than by the story of God. It's only because we've bought wholesale into the lie that for some reason we can find more satisfaction and more joy and more life in being passively entertained than by enjoying God actively with our own lives and our own voices. But when we step back, it's so easy to see. Passive consumption isn't giving us life, it's killing us. It's dulling us to everything, both the beauty of God and the corruptions of the beauty of God. Unlike anything else, singing is a gift from God that connects our head to our heart so that we might enjoy God. So although we do have some really incredible vocalists and some really incredible musicians that lead us each and every week in our worship, they would say this as strongly as I, Don't just sit back and admire them and their gifts. Join with them in enjoying God through music and through song. Third, singing combats reputation idolatry by forming us in our dependence. Singing combats reputation idolatry by forming us in our dependence. So one of the primary reasons that we might not engage emotionally in singing or maybe not participate at all in singing, is because we care too much about our reputations. Singing with other people is not, as we've said, a normal cultural practice, so it can feel really awkward to sing with other people, especially if you don't feel particularly gifted to sing. So I've said things before like this, maybe you've said something similar. Uh, No one really wants to hear me sing, and that's maybe got some truth to it. But I've said that before. No one really wants to hear me sing. I've also heard it said before that some people only sing solo, as in so low you can't really hear them. But, but saying things like that, like no one wants to hear me sing, making jokes about it, uh, that starts to normalize and dismiss the responsibility that really every single one of us has to cultivate a heart of doxology, a heart that erupts in praise to God, and then a heart that pours out lament to God in those moments of life. 
Personality and gifting, many of us would affirm this already, it's never meant to be an excuse for disobedience or faithlessness. Uh, That's true when we're talking about pursuing community and the 55 one another commandments of the New Testament. That's true when we're talking about evangelism. Uh, Just because you're introverted from a personality standpoint, uh, you're not gifted at apologetics, that's not like a free pass that we're given to just ignore the call we have, all of us, to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus. The same thing is true for singing. Or maybe we feel fine singing, but our desire to preserve our reputation holds us back, keeps us from ever doing anything expressive in worship. Like, God forbid, raise your hands or clap your hands or or shed a tear during the gathered worship of the church. Here's the question, especially for those of us who are not naturally gifted in singing or naturally inclined to be expressive ever in singing. Are you willing to lay aside your reputation and to look weak, desperate, undignified, and ungifted? Are you willing to lay aside your reputation and look like that? Because our lives in Christ are desperate, dependent, undignified lives. And the whole reason that we worship God is because we know the futility of trying to live for ourselves or some other lesser God. We worship God because we're keenly aware of our inability to find meaning and joy on our own. But if our posture is always to resist any outward expressions of worship unless we're gifted, and unless we can do it keeping our reputation intact, well, then we can't be surprised when that has effects on other pursuits in the Christian life. If you're unwilling to be expressive, if you're unwilling to be undignified in the gathered worship of the church, how likely is it that you'll ever be expressive or undignified in your life outside the church? If your posture is fearful and reserved and independent when singing in the gathered worship of the church, is that not forming in you a fearful and reserved and independent posture when the church scatters? So you may have never connected before singing and evangelism, singing and mission, or singing and faithful presence of the people of God in the world. But we have to believe, we better believe those things are connected. Because how we worship, how we sing, forms us. And if your reputation reigns supreme in here, it will certainly reign supreme out there. Singing combats reputation idolatry by forming us in our dependence. All of the things that could be said, all the things that maybe have been said about singing, let's close with this. More than anything, we sing because our God is a God who sings. So look again with me at verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What an astonishing, what a heart-stirring picture that the God of heaven and earth, the one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things, sings and he sings over you. In the setting of Zephaniah 3, This is God singing his own redemption. This is God singing his own rescue. So what sin has scattered, God is gathering back. 
Sin has broken. God is healing. Sin has enslaved his people, but God in Christ Jesus is buying you back. Sin has destroyed. God in Christ is making all things new. And this good news is not only proclaimed to you through the mouths of the prophets and the apostles, it is sung over you by the mouth of God himself. Far more than we have our own need to sing, and I would argue and have argued we have our own need to sing. But far more than that, we need to hear God singing over us. We need to know what God has done and what God is doing for us. We need to know and experience the love and the redemption of God. In Philadelphia, there's a historic church called 10th Presbyterian. I had the privilege about a year ago um, to go and to visit and take a tour of, of the facility there. In the sanctuary at 10th Press, rather than having um, choir risers up at the front of the worship space or off to the side, the choir actually sings from a loft at the rear of the sanctuary. Why would they do that? Specifically as a picture of Zephaniah 3.17. God himself sings your redemption over you. Now we don't have the ability to pull that off in here. We don't have the kind of space that they do there. But in addition to all of these other reasons why we sing, Sing to mirror, sing to image the very voice of God who sings over us. And do that to serve one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as an audible embodiment of the very voice of God himself. One of the things that I love about getting to sit in the front row is that when I hear the men and the women and the children lifting their voices behind me, they're sitting behind me, they're lifting their voices to God, that's a tangible taste for me of God himself singing over me. And when you come here on a Sunday morning, when you desperately long for someone to share in and amplify your joy, or when it's been a rough week, and when you've just been beaten down by your own sin, you've been beaten down by the world, and you're just exhausted, and it's one of those days where you're saying, I can't wait for Jesus to make all things new. Does it not, does it not defy comprehension that simply by sitting in front of someone else, you can get a small taste of the very voice of God singing his redemption over you? You can receive that from the other people in this room. You can be that for the other people in this room. You might not be able to solve their problems. You might not be able to do a thing about their circumstances, but through your voice, God might sing something of his redemption over them. So church, to the honor and praise of God, and for your own soul's formation in devotion and doctrine, and for the life of the world, for the souls of the men and women and children that you sit around today, Raise your voice and sing. Our God is the God who sings. May you hear his song over you. And may you join in. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we are weak people who need your song of redemption sung over us all the time. All the time. And you are a singing God. Our singing is, is just a reflection and an imaging of the song that you have been singing since you set out to redeem and rescue your people. Pray that we would hear it. 
Pray that it would form us in what is most true about the world, about you, about ourselves. That it would form us not only in truth, but in emotion. That we would feel your truth. And that that would equip us to serve one another and to serve this world, singing the redemption of God. You have purchased it through the work of Christ. And we gather now around his table to celebrate. We pray this in your name. Amen.